0: Chapters Seventy Seven and Seventy Eight of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter Seventy Seven. I do not think Ernest himself was much more pleased at finding that he had never been married than I was. To him, however, the shock of pleasure was positively numbing in its intensity. As he felt his burden removed, he reeled for the unaccustomed lightness of his movements. His position was so shattered that his identity seemed to have been shattered also. He was as one waking up from a horrible nightmare to find himself safe and sound in bed, but who can hardly even yet believe that the room is not full of armed men who are about to spring upon him. And it is I, he said, who not an hour ago complained that I was without hope. It is I who for weeks have been railing at fortune, and saying that though she smiled on others, she never smiled at me. Why, never was any one half so fortunate as I am. Yes, said I. AND YOU HAVE BEEN INOCULATED FOR MARRIAGE, AND HAVE RECOVERED. AND YET, HE SAID, I WAS VERY FOND OF HER TILL SHE TOOK TO DRINKING. PERHAPS, BUT IS IT NOT Tennyson WHO HAS SAID, TIS BETTER TO HAVE LOVED AND LOST THAN NEVER TO HAVE LOVED AT ALL? YOU ARE AN INVETERATE BACHELOR, WAS THE REJOINDER. Then we had a long talk with john, to whom I gave a five pound note upon the spot. He said Ellen used to drink at Battersby, the cook had taught her, he had known it, but was so fond of her that he had chanced it and married her to save her from the streets and in the hope of being able to keep her straight. She had done with him just as she had done with Ernest, made him an excellent wife as long as she kept sober but a very bad one afterwards. There isn't, said John, a sweeter-tempered, handier, prettier girl than she was in all England, nor one as knows better what a man likes, and how to make him happy, if you can keep her from drink. But you can't keep her. She's that artful, she'll get it under your very eyes, without you knowing it. If she can't get any more of your things to pawn or sell, she'll steal her neighbors. That's how she got into trouble first when I was with her. During the six months she was in prison. I should have felt happy, if I had not known she would come out again. And then she did come out. And before she had been free a fortnight, she began shoplifting and going on the loose again, all to get money to drink with. So, seeing I could do nothing with her, and that she was just a killing of me, I left her, and came up to London, and went into service again. And I did not know what had become of her till you and Mr. Ernest here told me. I hope you'll neither of you say you've seen me. We assured him we would keep his counsel, and then he left us, with many protestations of affection towards Ernest to whom he had been always much attached. We talked the situation over, and decided first to get the children away, and then to come to terms with Ellen concerning their future custody. As for herself, I proposed that we should make her an allowance of, say, a pound a week, to be paid so long as she gave no trouble. Ernest did not see where the pound a week was to come from, so I eased his mind by saying I would pay it myself. Before the day was two hours older, we had got the children, about whom Ellen had always appeared to be indifferent, and had confided them to the care of my laundress, a good motherly sort of woman, who took to them, and to whom they took at once. Then came the odious task of getting rid of their unhappy mother, ernest's heart smote him at the notion of the shock the break-up would be to her he was always thinking that people had a claim upon him for some inestimable service they had rendered him or for some irreparable mischief done to them by himself the case however was so clear that ernest's scruples did not offer serious resistance i did not see why he should have the pain of another interview with his wife so I got Mr. Ottery to manage the whole business. It turned out that we need not have harrowed ourselves so much about the agony of mind which Ellen would suffer on becoming an outcast again. Ernest saw Mrs. Richards, the neighbour who had called him down on the night when he first discovered his wife's drunkenness, and got from her some details of Ellen's opinions upon the matter. She did not seem in the least conscience-stricken. She said, Thank goodness, at last! And although aware that her marriage was not a valid one, evidently regarded this as a mere detail which it would not be worth anybody's while to go into more particularly. As regards his breaking with her, she said it was a good job both for him and for her. This life, she continued, don't suit me. Ernest is too good for me. HE WANTS A WOMAN AS SHALL BE A BIT BETTER THAN ME, AND I WANT A MAN THAT SHALL BE A BIT WORSE THAN HIM. WE SHOULD HAVE GOT ON ALL VERY WELL IF WE HAD NOT LIVED TOGETHER AS MARRIED FOLKS, BUT I'VE BEEN USED TO HAVING A LITTLE PLACE OF MY OWN, HOWEVER SMALL, FOR A MANY YEARS, AND I DON'T WANT Ernest OR ANY OTHER MAN, ALWAYS HANGING ABOUT. BESIDES, HE'S TOO STEADY. HIS BEING IN PRISON HASN'T DONE HIM A BIT OF GOOD. "'He's just as grave as those who have never been in prison at all. "'And he never swears nor curses, come what may. "'It makes me afeard of him, and therefore I drink the worse. "'What us poor girls want is not to be jumped up all of a sudden "'and made honest women of. "'This is too much for us and throws us off our perch. "'What we wants is a regular friend or two who will just keep us from starving and force us to be good for a bit together now and then. That's about as much as we can stand. He may have the children. He can do better for them than I can. And as for his money, he may give it or keep it as he likes. He's never done me any harm, and I shall let him alone. But if he means me to have it, I suppose I'd better have it. And have it she did. "'And I,' thought Ernest to himself when the arrangement was concluded, "'am the man who thought himself unlucky. "'I may as well say here all that need be said further about Ellen. "'For the next three years she used to call regularly at Mr. Ottery's "'every Monday morning for her pound. "'She was always neatly dressed and looked so quiet and pretty "'that no one would have suspected her antecedents.' At first she wanted sometimes to anticipate, but after three or four ineffectual attempts, on each of which occasions she told a most pitiful story, she gave it up and took her money regularly without a word. Once she came with a bad black eye, which a boy had throwed a stone and hit her by mistake. But on the whole she looked pretty much the same at the end of the three years as she had done at the beginning then she explained that she was going to be married again. Mr. Ottery saw her on this, and pointed out to her that she would very likely be again committing bigamy by doing so. "'You may call it what you like,' she replied, "'but I am going off to America with Bill, the butcher's man, and we hope Mr. Pontifex won't be too hard on us, and stop the allowance.' Ernest was little likely to do this, so the pair went in peace." i believe it was bill who had blackened her eye and she liked him all the better for it from one or two little things i have been able to gather that the couple got on very well together and that in bill she has found a partner better suited to her than either john or ernest On his birthday, Ernest generally receives an envelope with an American postmark containing a bookmarker with a flaunting text upon it, or a moral kettle-holder, or some other similar small token of recognition, but no letter. Of the children, she has taken no notice. CHAPTER 78 Ernest was now well turned twenty-six years old. AND IN LITTLE MORE THAN ANOTHER YEAR AND A HALF WOULD COME INTO POSSESSION OF HIS MONEY. I SAW NO REASON FOR LETTING HIM HAVE IT EARLIER THAN THE DATE FIXED BY MISS PONTIFEX HERSELF. AT THE SAME TIME I DID NOT LIKE HIS CONTINUING THE SHOP AT BLACKFRIAR'S AFTER THE PRESENT CRISIS. IT WAS NOT TILL NOW THAT I FULLY UNDERSTOOD HOW MUCH HE HAD SUFFERED, NOR HOW NEARLY HIS SUPPOSED WIFE'S HABITS HAD BROUGHT HIM TO ACTUAL WANT. I had indeed noted the old wan-worn look settling upon his face, but was either too indolent or too hopeless of being able to sustain a protracted and successful warfare with Ellen to extend the sympathy and make the inquiries which I suppose I ought to have made, and yet I hardly know what I could have done, for nothing short of his finding out what he had found out would have detached him from his wife and nothing could do him much good as long as he continued to live with her. After all, I suppose I was right. I suppose things did turn out all the better in the end for having been left to settle themselves. At any rate, whether they did or did not, the whole thing was in too great a muddle for me to venture to tackle it, so long as Ellen was upon the scene. Now, however, that she was removed— all my interest in my godson revived, and I turned over many times in my mind what I had better do with him. It was now three and a half years since he had come up to London and begun to live, so to speak, upon his own account. Of these years, six months had been spent as a clergyman, six months in jail, and for two and a half years he had been acquiring twofold experience in the ways of business and of marriage. He had failed, I may say, in everything that he had undertaken, even as a prisoner. Yet his defeats had always been, as it seemed to me, something so like victories, that I was satisfied of his being worth all the pains I could bestow upon him. My only fear was lest I should meddle with him when it might be better for him to be let alone. On the whole I concluded that a three and a half year apprenticeship to a rough life was enough. The shop had done much for him. It had kept him going after a fashion when he was in great need. It had thrown him upon his own resources and taught him to see profitable openings all around him where a few months before he would have seen nothing but insuperable difficulties. It had enlarged his sympathies by making him understand the lower classes, and not confining his view of life to that taken by gentlemen only. When he went about the streets and saw the books outside the second-hand book-stalls, the bric-a-brac and curiosity-shops, and the infinite commercial activity which is omnipresent around us, He understood it and sympathized with it, as he could never have done if he had not kept a shop himself. He has often told me that when he used to travel on a railway that overlooked populous suburbs, and looked down upon street after street of dingy houses, he used to wonder what kind of people lived in them, what they did and felt, and how far it was like what he did and felt himself now he said he knew all about it i am not very familiar with the writer of the odyssey who by the way i suspect strongly of having been a clergyman but he assuredly hit the right nail on the head when he epitomized his typical wise man as knowing the ways and fairings of many men what culture is comparable to this what a lie what a sickly debilitating debauch did not Ernest's school and university career now seem to him in comparison with his life in prison and as a tailor in blackfriars i have heard him say he would have gone through all he had suffered if it were only for the deeper insight it gave him into the spirit of the grecian and the surrey pantomimes What confidence again in his own power to swim if thrown into deep waters had not he won through his experiences during the last three years? But as I have said, I thought my godson had now seen as much of the undercurrents of life as was likely to be of use to him, and that it was time he began to live in a style more suitable to his prospects. His aunt had wished him to kiss the soil, and he had kissed it with a vengeance. But I did not like the notion of his coming suddenly from the position of a small shopkeeper to that of a man with an income of between three and four thousand a year. Too sudden a jump from bad fortune to good is just as dangerous as one from good to bad. Besides, poverty is very wearing— It is a quasi-embryonic condition, through which a man had better pass if he is to hold his later development securely, but like measles or scarlet fever, he had better have it mildly, and get it over early. No man is safe from losing every penny he has in the world, unless he has had his facer, How often do I not hear middle-aged women and quiet family men say that they have no speculative tendency? They never had touched, and never would touch, any but the very soundest, best-reputed investments. And as for unlimited liability, oh, dear, dear! And they throw up their hands and eyes. Whenever a person is heard to talk thus, he may be recognized as the easy prey of the first adventurer who comes across him. He will commonly, indeed, wind up his discourse by saying that, in spite of all his natural caution, and his well-knowing of how foolish speculation is, yet there are some investments which are called speculative, but in reality are not so, and he will pull out of his pocket the prospectus of a Cornish gold-mine." It is only on having actually lost money that one realises what an awful thing the loss of it is, and finds out how easily it is lost by those who venture out of the middle of the most beaten path. Ernest had had his facer, and he had had his attack of poverty, young and sufficiently badly for a sensible man to be little likely to forget it. I can fancy few pieces of good fortune greater than this happening to any man, provided, of course, that he is not damaged irretrievably. So strongly do I feel on this subject that if I had my way, I would have a speculation master attached to every school. The boys would be encouraged to read the Money Market Review, the Railway News, and all the best financial papers and should establish a stock exchange amongst themselves in which pence should stand as pounds. Then let them see how this making haste to get rich money's out in actual practice. There might be a prize awarded by the headmaster to the most prudent dealer, and the boys who lost their money time after time should be dismissed. Of course, if any boy proved to have a genius for speculation and made money, well and good, Let him speculate by all means. If universities were not the worst teachers in the world, I should like to see professorships of speculation established at Oxford and Cambridge. When I reflect, however, that the only things worth doing which Oxford and Cambridge can do well are cooking, cricket, rowing, and games, of which there is no professorship, I fear that the establishment of a professorial chair would end in teaching young men neither how to speculate, nor how not to speculate, but would simply turn them out as bad speculators. I heard of one case in which a father actually carried my idea into practice. He wanted his son to learn how little confidence was to be placed in glowing prospectuses and flaming articles, AND FOUND HIM FIVE HUNDRED POUNDS, WHICH HE WAS TO INVEST ACCORDING TO HIS LIGHTS. THE FATHER EXPECTED HE WOULD LOSE THE MONEY. BUT IT DID NOT TURN OUT SO IN PRACTICE. FOR THE BOY TOOK SO MUCH PAINS, AND PLAYED SO CAUTIOUSLY, THAT THE MONEY KEPT GROWING AND GROWING, TILL THE FATHER TOOK IT AWAY AGAIN, INCREMENT AND ALL, AS HE WAS PLEASED TO SAY, IN SELF-DEFENSE. I had made my own mistakes with money about the year 1846, when everyone else was making them. For a few years I had been so scared and had suffered so severely that when, owing to the good advice of the broker who had advised my father and grandfather before me, I came out in the end a winner and not a loser. I played no more pranks but kept henceforward as nearly in the middle of the middle rut as I could. I tried, in fact, to keep my money, rather than to make more of it. I had done with Ernest's money, as with my own. That is to say, I let it alone after investing it in Midland ordinary stock, according to Miss Pontifex's instructions. No amount of trouble would have been likely to have increased my godson's estate one-half so much as it had increased without my taking any trouble at all midland stock at the end of august eighteen fifty when i sold out miss pontifex's debentures stood at thirty-two pounds per one hundred pounds i invested the whole of ernest fifteen thousand pounds at this price and did not change the investment till a few months before the time of which i have been writing lately that is to say, until September 1861. I then sold at £129 per share and invested in London and North-Western ordinary stock, which I was advised was more likely to rise than Midlands now were. I bought the London and North-Western stock at £93 per £100, and my godson now, in 1882, still holds it. The original fifteen thousand pounds had increased in eleven years to over sixty thousand pounds. The accumulated interest, which of course I had reinvested, had come to about ten thousand pounds more, so that Ernest was then worth over seventy thousand pounds. At present he is worth nearly double that sum, and all as the result of leaving well alone large as his property now was, it ought to be increased still further during the year and a half that remained of his minority, so that on coming of age he ought to have an income of at least thirty-five hundred pounds a year. I wished him to understand bookkeeping by double entry. I had myself, as a young man, been compelled to master this not very difficult art. Having acquired it, I have become enamoured of it, and consider it the most necessary branch of any young man's education after reading and writing i was determined therefore that ernest should master it and proposed that he should become my steward bookkeeper and the manager of my hoardings for so i called the sum which my ledger showed to have accumulated from fifteen thousand pounds to seventy thousand pounds I told him I was going to begin to spend the income as soon as it had amounted up to eighty thousand pounds. A few days after Ernest's discovery that he was still a bachelor, while he was still at the very beginning of his honeymoon, as it were, of his renewed unmarried life, I broached my scheme, desired him to give up his shop, and offered him three hundred pounds a year for managing, so far indeed as it required any managing his own property. This three hundred pounds a year, I need hardly say, I made him charge to the estate. If anything had been wanting to complete his happiness, it was this. Here, within three or four days, he found himself freed from one of the most hideous hopeless liaisons imaginable, and at the same time raised from a life of almost squalor, to the enjoyment of what would to him be a handsome income. A pound a week, he thought, for Ellen, and the rest for myself. "'No,' I said. "'We will charge Ellen's pound a week to the estate also. You must have a clear three hundred pounds for yourself.' I fixed upon this sum because it was the one which Mr. Disraeli gave Coningsby when Coningsby was at the lowest ebb of his fortunes. Mr. Disraeli evidently thought three hundred pounds a year the smallest sum on which Coningsby could be expected to live, and make the two ends meet. With this, however, he thought his hero could manage to get along for a year or two, In 1862, of which I am now writing, prices had risen, though not so much as they have since done. On the other hand, Ernest had had less expensive antecedents than Coningsby, so on the whole, I thought three hundred pounds a year would be about the right thing for him. End of chapter seventy eight. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.